Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 will be our key text today as we continue our sermon series to be continued with the sermon working for the gospel. Most of us will go home today, do whatever it is we do on Sunday afternoon, hopefully get a little bit of rest, enjoy yourself, get yourself ready for the coming week, and tomorrow morning you will get up and fill in the blank for me here. You will get up and go to? Yeah. You get up and go to work. I want you to keep filling in the blank for me. Uh, When we're driving around town and we see the little orange cones everywhere, we say, oh, there is road. Work, work, work is the word I'm looking for, D. Hey, everybody, each fill in the blank is work. Don't get creative like D. If you see a Hollywood-type celebrity and their face looks a little strange to you, you might say, ooh, that person has had some (laughs) construction work. Yeah, (laughs) Depending on how old they are and how much work they had to have done, yeah. And my least favorite, although I love my dentist and his staff is wonderful and precious, uh, they're great people, I do not like to lay in that chair and have dental. There's all types of work, all types of work. But as believers in Jesus, we are called to work as well. And we're called to work not necessarily in a way like I'm talking about. I was just doing that maybe to get a laugh and it worked well and thank you for playing along. But to work for the gospel. Because we have been saved, we're compelled to do something about it, to live our lives in such a way to demonstrate the gospel truths to others in our lives. So if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word, would you do that as we read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard from me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardships with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be first to receive the share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Verse 11. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him... He will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Let's pray. Father, we're challenged by the images, the examples, and the teaching of this scripture. We pray that as we continue to examine it, you'd speak your truth deep in our hearts as only you can by your Holy Spirit. And certainly we pray, Father, if there's anyone here,
who's never trusted Christ as their Savior, that they would understand their need for a Savior today as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Our scripture memory verse for the month reminds us of the power that is at work within us to allow us to work for the gospel. Let's say it together. 2 Timothy 1.7 For the Spirit of God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. 2 Timothy 1.7 God gives us power, love, and self-discipline. And in our passage of Scripture today, we see where that comes from. If you turn your attention back to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and your copy of God's Word, verse 1. You then, my son, being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, my NIV translation of the Bible masks it, and a couple of it put them there. And in a few weeks, we're going to emphasize this uh, repetition that Paul uses here that's in the Greek. In the Greek, this uh, verse actually starts with one word, but it's a phrase for us, as for you. Is what it is. As for you, and it's an emphatic you. Again and again, throughout 2 Timothy in particular, Paul says to his son in the ministry, Timothy, as for you, as for you, as for you. He's pointing out to Timothy that although I'm writing this letter to you as a pastor and to the Ephesian church in which you pastor, there's some specific things I want to make sure that you get, Timothy, because I love you and it's this important. And Paul says that here in verse 1. As for you, then he adds to it so you know where he's coming from. My son. Timothy was like his son in the ministry, but more than that, in a deep, loving relationship. And what's he say to him? Be strong. That's a vigorous word tense in the Greek. It's as strong as strong can be. It's the same word used in Philippians 4.13. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's the power of God within us. And look at where it comes from in verse 1 here. In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Where does true strength come from? Where does the power to do everything that Paul is about to tell him to do come from? Where is the power to work, even endure, even suffer for the gospel come from? Right there. In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's where, friends, when we think about God's goodness, when we think about God's grace, that's His grace that redeems us and saves us, but it's His grace that sustains us and carries us. His grace that strengthens us with power that's supernatural. Which leads us to your first point on your outline. That first point is that you are strengthened for the gospel. You are strengthened for the gospel and follow that up with a question right away. That question is, what makes me strong? You heard it. What is it? Somebody say it to me. What makes me strong? Grace. God's grace. God's grace in Jesus. That's what makes me strong. And friends, write that in your outline there. I I, I leave that space. He has made some things. And as you think about what God has done for you and how He has made you strong, what motivates you? What gives you directions? What gives you purposes? We have lots of things that motivate us and give us strength. 
But as a believer in Jesus, we're strengthened for the gospel by God's grace. Look on in verse 2. And the things which you have heard from me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Let me ask you a question. What's the most reliable thing in your house? You think, oh, what's the most reliable thing in my house? Okay, when I open the refrigerator door, the light is always somehow magically on. It's pretty reliable, right? Until the light goes out. It's reliable that, um, well, I mean, you fill in the blank. That when there's the smell of food in your house, your teenagers are going to be hungry, right? Most of the time, that's reliable. I'll tell you the most reliable thing in my house is not the light in the refrigerator because that has burned out and I've replaced it a couple times. The most reliable thing in my house is my dog Hudson in one particular instance. And this is it. I demonstrated it this morning. Very quietly this morning, I opened the pantry door. Very quietly, without shuffling around in the kitchen, I moved over to the cabinet and very quietly unscrewed the lid on the peanut butter jar. I didn't say anything. I made not a sound. It was like I was a peanut butter ninja. But within three seconds, he was right there. So I go about getting my bread in the toaster to make it toast, push it down. I'm sitting there, and he's just sitting there looking at me. About four or five feet away, right? The toast pops up out of the toaster. I get my peanut butter because, as you can see, I'm making peanut butter toast. I slather some on one piece of bread. And as I'm going back in the jar to get some more peanut butter for the second piece of bread, he kind of scoots up a little bit. And then he looks up at me and goes... (laughs) He's saying to me, Dad... Am I going to get to lick the peanut butter spoon? Well, of course. I let him lick the excess off. I mean, then you don't have to waste a napkin, and you're going to put it in the dishwasher anyhow, right? I mean, it's like ecological. (laughs) Hudson gets a treat, and it gets cleaned better. So uh, there you go. But there's nothing in our house more reliable than Hudson with peanut butter. Melanie has said to me before, he smells it. I'm like, no, it's the sound of the pantry opening. It's when I go in the kitchen. He doesn't care when I go in to get coffee. Somehow that doesn't attract him. He doesn't care if I pour cereal in a bowl. That doesn't attract him. But you open the peanut butter door, he's there, reliable. Look at what Scripture says. And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men will also be qualified to teach others. Reliable men are people that you can count on. You can substitute in their reliable persons. It's not just exclusive to men. Women can teach and should teach the gospel and biblical truths as well. We know that. So entrust this to reliable people. And we need to fill in the blank there. And I forgot. Sam was waiting on me. Thanks, Sam. Teaching the gospel. We've got a job to teach the gospel, to teach the truths of the Bible to other people. But how do we do that? As we've heard it from our teacher, we then find others that we can teach it to that are reliable in their character. At the end of our worship service today, we have the privilege to ordain the two men who you nominated and then you voted on to become new deacons in our church, Vasila Litson and Dick Clark. And so I'm going to promise you, get done with the sermon sooner than uh, normal, and we're going to have them here with their wives, and uh, those that are already ordained will pass by and pray for them. Now, for some of you that will be like, oh, can we not just go to Sunday school? Resist that temptation. I want to ask you to pray for those men and pray for our church. 
And I'll say to you now what I say again and again about men we call out to be deacons. It's not that we say, hey, that dude needs to be a deacon for a fill-in-the-blank reason. It's that we look at that man and we see his faithfulness, his character, and that he's reliable. And not that he's perfect, but that he's genuine. And not that he's in any way prideful, but that he's humble. And we say, this is a man who's already got the character qualities of a deacon. We're just recognizing those in him. And it will be our privilege as those that you have already called out and have already been ordained to lay hands on them and pray for them. Yea, there'll be brief prayers just because the time we have available, but to pray for them and to set them aside for the gospel ministry and to do exactly what this passage of Scripture is teaching us about, entrusting these things to reliable men. So your question is, who should I teach? Who should you teach the gospel to? Well, in the broad sense, you should share the gospel evangelism with everybody, you know, particularly those who don't have saving faith in Jesus. That's our job. We're to work for the gospel that way. But for those who are already saved, we should continue to teach them. We have a very active Awana program and our Sunday school program, and we need volunteers even in the nursery. And you're like, how can I teach the gospel to children in the nursery? Man, you love them in Jesus' name. They know that you love them. How do I know they know you love them? When they see you walking down the hall in church, they may not even remember your name, but they want to give you a hug because you were nice to them and you loved them in Jesus' name in the nursery. You do that with your children. You do that with your grandchildren. You do that with anybody you know who's a believer in Jesus that you share with them what you know based on what Scripture has taught you in order that they might become more like Jesus as well. We teach reliable people. Let's move on in our passage of Scripture. In verses 3 through 6, Paul gives four different examples of the type of person that we should emulate as we work for the gospel. He talks about a a soldier, well, a teacher, verse 1 and 2, excuse me, so 3. He gives examples of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And then verse 7, he gives, uh, tells us, think about these things. So let's look very quickly at verse 3 through 4. It says, endure hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier wants to get involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. A soldier has a single purpose. That's to carry out the mission in obedience to his commanding officer. That's it. To follow orders to accomplish the mission set before you. Whatever it takes. That's what a soldier is supposed to do. And as believers in Jesus and as teachers thereof, we should as well. Look at verse 5. It says, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. In other words, you can't cheat. But he left out the whole part of you got to work hard and you got to be prepared. Yes, you need some natural gifting and ability, but you need training and coaching and hard work. And the idea to work, uh, uh, you know, give it everything you've got. In verse 6, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive the share of the crops. I got a question for you. Do you know any lazy farmers? No. Lazy farmers aren't farmers for very long. Amen? Because the farm don't take care of itself. And as farmers, you've got to be a generalist, a jack of all trades. You've got to do everything and know everything and fix everything or know somebody that can and uh, be a good enough friend with them and uh, dependable enough for them that they're going to want to help you. You've got to do that hard work. 
And look at verse 7. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Your point there is that we have examples of working for the gospel. We have those three very specific examples. A soldier carrying out his mission. A farmer working hard. And an athlete working for the prize, following the rules. And all three of these are examples to us of how we are supposed to work for the gospel. Well, we think about our mission. Our mission is to share the good news of Jesus with others. We think about uh, then the second part there, which is the athletes, to follow the rules that are set forth for us in Scripture. And we think about getting a share of our reward. That's the grace that God gives to us based on the grace we share with others and the blessings we feel because we have given ourselves on behalf of others. And notice what Paul said in verse 7, reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Which leads to your application question there. What do these truths or examples teach me? When you hear these three different examples of the soldier, of the athlete, of the farmer, that the Holy Spirit is teaching you. G.K. Chesterton once said, the Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found, it has been found difficult and not tried. As believers in Jesus, we've been given the grace of God through Jesus. And we've given through that grace all the power and all the strength that we need. Yet, because we try to do things on our own, we go, man, that's too hard. I don't want to do that. Yet, because we're too selfish and sinful, man, that's going to take too much of my time. I don't want to do that. Yet, because we're too stingy, we think, man, that's going to take money. I'd really like to spend on something else. I don't want to give that. But where does our grace, our strength come from? Grace. Grace is the source of our strength. Grace is the source of our motivation. Grace empowers us to do this work. So verses 1 through 7 really give us um, an example And points to us how. But now Paul's going to shift in verses 8 through 13. And going to teach us these truths to promote or encourage effective ministry. And so let's read there in verse 8 and 9. Remember, Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Your point here is that this is the gospel. This is the gospel. The gospel is very shortly, succinctly stated there. Did you see it in verse 8? Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. So two parts there. The second part, descended from David, i.e. he's the prophesied Hebrew Messiah, but raised from the dead, that part. I know that's only one short phrase, but it demonstrates everything else that Jesus said. He said, I was God's son. He says, I have all power. And then he demonstrated it by his resurrection from the dead, something no one else ever did. When you even think about Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. Lazarus is not technically referred to as a resurrection, but a resuscitation. Why? Lazarus died again, and he is in a grave somewhere and has turned to dust long since ago. 
But Jesus rose from the grave and is still living today. That's a resurrection. And that's eternal. And that's the power that is the gospel. That God sent Jesus to be a savior of the world. And he demonstrated his love and his power through the life and the resurrection of Jesus. So your question is, how do I understand the gospel? Paul says, I'm in chains for this. But the gospel is not chained. Even though they chain me up and my movements are limited. And it's terribly inconvenient. And it's probably painful at times. And literally a drag as you're dragging chains across the floor. If you can even walk across the floor. He says, the gospel itself is not chained. Because it goes with our words. It goes with our heart. I'll never forget when I was in South Africa as a missionary. We had a tent that we erected on a site in a squatter camp. And this tent, uh, you know, like a circus tent kind of thing, but oh, it was like, what, 60 feet long by 30 feet wide, something like that. And it was white and yellow. Why white and yellow? Because it was the cheap price and we we're missionaries and we didn't have a lot of money. So we bought the white and yellow tent. And most often on Sundays, if the weather was nice, we would take the sides off the tent. So it was only the roof shading us from the sun. But the other reason was so that the wind could come through. But here's the great part. We're in the middle of a squatter camp. People living in shacks, 10 walls. And they're living right on the other side of our fence. Like, you know, six feet from the edge of the fence is our first neighbor. And then there's 10 more down this way and 20 more down that way. When we sang, the music carried the words of the gospel. And it would always be amazing to me that we would start church inside our tent and there might be 40 or 50 people there. African folks are notoriously late. But as we sang, more people would come. And it seemed like the longer we sang and the louder we sang, more people would come. And by the time it was ready for the preacher to share the word from the gospel in the Bible, the tent would be full. And I was like, this is amazing. Remind me why in America we have walls on our buildings and we surround them by big lawns and parking lots? I want to say, brothers and sisters, yes, there's Christian radio stations. And yes, there's other things we can do and say to share the gospel. But your life, out amidst your friends, sharing the gospel should make a difference. Like the music and the tent with no walls in South Africa, that's your life. Let's move on to your next point. The next point is endurance for the gospel. And that's in verse 10. Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Why did Paul suffer? For the gospel. That was his purpose, his aim as a soldier on mission, as an athlete who wasn't going to break the rules as a farmer who had to work hard to take care of himself and others. I mentioned suffering and endurance last week, and Dr. George Hansen had a book about endurance, and it's written in a great way, but it's loaded with research as well. And the interesting thing, and I'm about a third of the way through, George, is that it's not just your physical limitations, but it's your mental that keeps you from going as far as your body can go, whether that's running a marathon or whether that's riding in the Tour de France, or any other event or activity that takes endurance and suffering. And it's so your ability to learn how to suffer 
the psychological part that however you get around it or beyond it, that unleashes your physical. The question about the gospel, however, is why? Why suffer for the gospel? Why would we suffer for the gospel? Of all the things we could suffer for, why the gospel? And I say we go to the gym and we lift weights and we suffer. We go run and we run hard and far and we suffer. We go to work and sometimes because of the type of things we have to do, we suffer. And then I have to ask that you might insert a little word in there. Why not suffer for the gospel? If the gospel is God's love for all people to set everyone free, why not suffer for the gospel? It was Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary to the Alka Indians over 60 years ago who said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot earn. The things of this life we cannot keep, but the things of eternity that come by the gospel in our lives and sharing the gospel in other people's lives, we cannot earn them. Maybe we need to ask God to help turn our priorities around so that we might focus on the stuff of eternity. Think about it, friends. There are only two types of things that are eternal. God and the souls of other humans. Are you giving yourself to those two things in such a way that you're making a difference, that you're even willing to endure and suffer for the gospel? Verses 11, 12, and 13. Even when you look at the way they're formatted in your Bible, you might say, oh, look, it looks like a poem. Yeah, maybe it was a, a Christian hymn. There's some debate on this, whether Paul wrote it or whether it was already known. Maybe it was one that somebody in the Ephesian church wrote. So when he's writing it back to them, they all go, oh, yeah, that's the hymn that brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so wrote. But look at what it says. There's four conditional clauses. So the if-then, right? The protasis and the apodosis. The if is the action required by a Christ follower. And the then is a result for either the individual Christ follower or the group, i.e. the church of Christ followers. Look at what it says there in verse 11, the first one. Yeah, here's a Christ trustworthy saying, If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. So dying to ourself in Christ Jesus, we're going to live for eternal life. That's your first promise. Look at the second one there in the beginning of verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. In other words, your activity, your endurance, your suffering, your work for the gospel is going to earn you not just a ticket into heaven, but a reign in heaven, rewards in heaven. Look at the second half of verse 12. If we disown Him, He will also disown us. That one's a negative, a warning. And I wouldn't use that one to say that you can lose your salvation. I'm not there. But to say that if you live a life that denies who Jesus is, even when you've been given the opportunity to know who he is, and you disown him in eternity, he'll disown you. And look at the fourth one. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful. He cannot disown himself. That faithless there is present tense in the Greek. So maybe it was that the church at Ephesus, there were some folks struggling with being faithful to God. And Paul is saying to them, I know you're that way right now. But think about God's grace that I started here with verse one. He's not going to disown you. He 
loves you. So your question here is, oh, oh, I forgot to give that first point, is singing about the gospel. Sorry about that. Singing about the gospel because this is a song. But here's your question. What do I learn from this song? What did you hear in that song that challenges you? Not just the academic part that I explained to you that you went, okay, it talks about four things. It was this, 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 and this. But what challenges you? What makes you think about what you should do and how you should work? Empowered by the Holy Spirit, fueled by grace, working for the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the challenge that we've received today from the Apostle Paul to Timothy then, and to us now. That we too should give our lives to work for the gospel. That because of the grace you've given us, that has saved us, you give us that same grace to sustain us. That we might work hard like a farmer, play by the rules like a good athlete. And fulfill the mission like a soldier. All with faithful people that are reliable. Who we can entrust the gospel to. That they too might entrust it to others. So Father we thank you for your words for us today. We pray that we would obey them. In Jesus name. Amen.